Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 7 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in East Nashville, Tennessee. I'm so glad you've chosen to join me once again as we take some deep dives with a cast of wonderful musicians, producers, and engineers that I've managed to track down and speak to about making music, records, and just doing what they do in their lives in music. Don't forget there's a link to a playlist on Spotify and Apple Music with links to many of the songs we discuss on today's episode. You'll find links to those playlists in the show notes below or at our website. Meanwhile, the show continues to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription, which is a monthly payment of your choice. And when you sign up for Patreon, you get an ad-free version of the show to listen to, as well as getting entered to win a cunning prize pack from our sponsors at the end of the season. Or if you're tight for dough and you still want to help out, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just by spreading the word, sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, a huge thanks to the sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know I sent you. They are Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resophonic Guitars, and The Henhouse Hang. All right, thanks so much to you for tuning in, and let's get down to it. Howdy, music nerds, and welcome back to the show. This is episode number 149. My guest today is a legend, a true legend of the steel guitar, Mr. Al Perkins, and it was a real honor to have him. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I sure appreciate you listening. I've been uh, busy here mixing a bunch of albums and getting some arranging done for some shows this fall. And I do have some shows coming up both around Nashville and also out in Vancouver. And you can get info and tickets to shows over at my website, which is stevedawson.ca. And I do hope to see some of you out there somewhere this fall. You know, we had a big loss here in the Nashville music scene this week with Dave Rowe passing away. He was one of the great bass players of all time. He was sort of known, I guess, mostly as an upright bass player, but he was also a killer on, on electric bass. And I used to see him playing all the time around town here. And uh, he was just a monster, monster bass player with a big old groove and a massive tone. And the story with him was that, uh, and I don't know how true this is, but I, I think it's true, is that Johnny Cash asked him to play upright bass with him. This is a long time ago, like in the early 60s maybe, or I don't know, mid-60s or something. And he asked Dave to play upright bass with him. And Dave was super young and at that point apparently had never played the upright bass. But he said, yeah, man, I can do that. <laughs> and so he started playing upright bass like that day for Johnny Cash. And he played with him for years. But I guess a couple weeks into that gig, he was sort of like fumbling his way through the through figuring out how to play the upright bass, which he was not used to playing. And Johnny eventually turned to him and said, you don't know how to play that thing, do you? 
And oh, yeah, he was right. But he let it slide and he kept Dave on and Dave played with him for years. And uh, that's pretty damn cool if that's true. And I think it is. So thanks for all the great music, Dave Rowe. I would have loved to have him on this podcast, you know, but it just never happened. Dang. As a reminder, anyone that's a Patreon member will be automatically entered into the end of season contest and the winner will be picked randomly from the Patreon subscribers. You can sign up for that with a minimal monthly payment to support the show, which is very much appreciated over at the website makersandshakerspodcast.com. There's a donate link up in the top corner and that will take you either to a one-time donation or to sign up for Patreon. And uh, yeah, from the Patreon subscribers, I will be giving away a prize pack at the end of the year. And my friends over at the Union Tube and Transistor Company in Vancouver, they just sent me a bunch of wicked swag as well as three of their amazing guitar pedals to give away. And that's going to happen at the end of the season. So stay tuned for that. Sign up to the Patreon, support the show, and uh, win some stuff. And I would just like to shout out to a new donor this week who was very generous and um, has signed up for the Patreon subscription, and that is Dan Martin. Thank you, Dan. Much appreciated. All right. So on the show today, we have Al Perkins. He is a true legend of the steel guitar. I've known his name for a long time because when I was in high school, weirdly, one of my favorite albums was called Manassas. And um, that was it was sort of a solo Stephen Stills record. Stephen Stills was already quite famous, and he had, you know, through Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Buffalo Springfield. But he had this record called Manassas, and it wasn't clear if that was like the name of the record or if there was a band called Manassas. But it's a really cool, kind of blurry, timeless-looking photo, and all the musicians are listed. And those were players that I was sort of familiar with from that like California country rock scene. And then Al Perkins, I I didn't know his name at the time, but you know, I was in high school and I started listening to that record and loved it. It's always been a, a great record and I still love that record to this day. So I highly recommend checking out Manassas and some of Al Perkins's great work on that. And Al grew up playing steel guitar as a little tyke in country bands on radio and TV around his home state of Texas and eventually got in bands and moved to California. And he, yeah, he was in a band called Shiloh at that point, which also featured Don Henley, later of the Eagles. The California country scene is very uh, incestuous <laughs> in a way. And uh, anyway, he ran into Kenny Rogers out there who sort of took him under his wing. And Kenny at that time was like a rock star. He was in that band called First Edition, and they had a huge hit around that time called Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In. And that's featured in The Big Lebowski, as we all know. Maybe it's time to go and watch that movie again. So Al was playing in Shiloh. Kenny Rogers was bringing him in to do sessions. And all this work eventually led to Al replacing the great, legendary Sneaky Pete in the Flying Burrito Brothers band, which was kind of an ever-revolving cast of characters and one that featured members that, that went on to be members of The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and Graham Parsons was in the band through its different incarnations as well. Al ended up playing on Graham's two solo records. He also played on The Stones' Exile on Main Street. It's just one song, but man, what a session that must have been, and you'll hear a bit about that in a few minutes here. And uh, from there, his credits through the 70s and 80s kind of go bananas, and he's playing all the time and doing tons of sessions. Then he cropped up again on my radar as a live player, as a, a the Dobro player in Emmylou Harris's Nash Ramblers. They made that great record called Live at the Ryman in the late 90s, which really has been 
given credit, rightly so, to saving the Ryman Auditorium, which is one of the great venues in America. And uh, I guess it was just falling apart at that time, and Emmylou decided to put on put on a show there. And it, you know, the album was fantastic, and it won Grammys and brought all this attention to the Ryman. And then they were like, "Oh, maybe the Ryman's cool after all." And they invested a bunch of money, and now it is what it is, which is this legendary great venue. So he was part of that band called the Nash Ramblers, which is amazing. And he continues to play sessions and occasionally gigs around town here. This one was tricky to get lined up, uh, just technically and also for time. But Al's wife, Pamela, was kind enough to help out with some of the technical stuff on their end, getting the Zoom set up. And uh, you can also hear her in the background with some factual information as well. So thanks to Pamela. And uh, it was really fascinating to hear the stories about some of these sessions. And also, really, the technical side of things is of great interest to me, and I hope to you, too, as a listener. You have to remember that the pedal steel in in those days, you know, the, the late 60s and early 70s, it was a very fluid and evolving instrument. People were customizing their instruments themselves. And Al has some great stories here about adding knee levers to his fender steel using a, a gate hinge. And, you know, the pedal steel just didn't have a standard setup yet. So it was people like Al who really helped to innovate some of the things that the instrument uh, does now, but way back then, before really before the manufacturers had had figured out what it was that the musicians wanted. It, the, these people were doing it themselves, and eventually the the industry caught up, and now there's kind of a standard. But at that time, it really wasn't like that. So you can get lots of info on Al at alperkinsmusic.com. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Al Perkins. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, something that I find interesting with a lot of steel players is how they get into this crazy instrument in the first place. I know you play other instruments as well, but steel is something that, you know, you were kind of known for, especially back in the day. And growing up in Texas, which is, I think, where you're from, it's sort of more of the fabric of society there than it is where I'm from in Canada. But uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you got into music and what drew you to the steel and and how old you were when you started playing. Well, uh, back then it was probably in uh, the mid-50s, around 54, 55, something like that. I was uh, about 11 years old at that time. And uh, I uh, I was into Sandlot baseball, you know. We had out in West Texas, you know, we had a lot of empty spaces where we could play. Mm-hmm. And uh, but one day on a Saturday, my, my my father was a truck driver. He was off, and um, there there was a company up in Lubbock called Dunnigan School of Music, and they had uh, instituted uh, uh, a lot of people in different counties and different uh, states, actually, where they would offer Hawaiian steel guitar lessons. And uh, it was called the Dungan School of Music. And it came about the same time as we would listen to Hawaii calls from the uh, Trans-Pacific Line, you know, that went underground, went under the water, came up, and then they broadcasted, you know, uh, all over the states. And uh, so my dad was home. One of these fellows came by and knocked on the door and he said, uh, um, we're here with the, with this Dunnigan School of Music. We're putting in a class here in Odessa, Texas. That's where we were. Yep. And um, wondering if anybody would like to take steel guitar. My dad played a little bit of a acoustic guitar, you know, and had one around the house. And um, 
So uh, he asked me, I was there, he says, oh, what, what do you think about this? Do you think you'd like to like to uh, play uh, steel guitar, you know? And he said, I don't know. I said, and then he kind of lured me with something that was the wrong lure. He says, I think the girls like those musicians, you know? <laughs> I, wow. I didn't like anyway, that was anyway. We talked a little bit, and I I uh, ended up taking lessons from uh, a, a genius steel guitar player named Al Petty. At that time, he was uh, just under twenty one. He couldn't sign for himself to get furniture and stuff like that when he just moved into town to teach. So my dad actually co-signed for him to uh, to get some furniture and that kind of thing. And I ended up in a group class there uh, in Odessa for Hawaiian steel guitar. And they give you these little uh, number uh, charts, you know, like a zero, zero was uh, open, you know, and yep. it would have zero, zero on the second and third string or whatever. <clears throat> and we would learn Hawaiian songs. And um, I remember being in a class and, uh, we were we were learning the song for the next week usually you know before we'd leave he, yep. he would play it for Frank and everybody play it when he came back well i i did my own kind of little ad-libbing you know on one day i was just doing it and you know, just for fun i guess you know so and he, he called me at it and he said uh said al can uh, is your is your father picking you up today and I said, yes, sir, I think he is. He says, would you mind staying and, and uh, talking with me in the office? So I thought, well, it's back to Sandlot Baseball. <laughs> so, which I didn't, I didn't, you know, at that point, it didn't matter. Yeah. So my dad came in and um, he said, Mr. Perkins, I noticed that your son was playing by ear instead of reading the, uh, the, the chart. And... Uh, he said, uh, make a long story short, he said, if you could afford to give him private lessons, I could teach him twice as fast. So you imagine a teacher doing that really is one thing and somebody to recognize it at his age. But he was a genius, too, uh, that helped him. You know? <laughs> and uh, Was he sort of from the Western Swing School of Playing? And, and that, the, the Hawaiian was like the method that was being used to teach kids at, at that time? Correct. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, in the, uh, the little um, group that he was in, they would play on TV, you know, and they'd play in different uh, different towns around there at their, you know, whatever uh, venue they had that was big enough to help people that wanted to come and listen to music. Bill Myrick was the fellow's name. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, he began having me and an older student who was, who was teaching similarly, uh, to come out and play our our guitars on their show, you know, like one or two songs, or, or in some cases uh, we'd do three parts. Al Petty would play one, and me and the other fellow would play play the other. So, like, pr- uh, like pretty much from the book that you were learning from. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I have some and, of those books, like some of those folios from the twenties and thirties that they were using through the 40s. And I've actually recently tried to, like I've learned some because I'm so fascinated by that whole way of teaching people to play music. And it's actually pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, we, had, we didn't actually, as I recall, we, we actually did that by memory when we were on stage. But we would take one of those songs 
and and use that, you know. Yeah. So was this a like a live performance or was it a radio broadcast that you were playing on? These were were live uh, uh, shows, you know, on weekends. Uh-huh. And uh, during the week, I think sometimes uh, Al Petty, the group with Bill Myrick, they would play in other places occasionally, but they had a TV show as well. And uh, so that was that was uh, early, early on in West Texas. So what was your feeling like as a kid? Were you into it? Like, did you think it was cool or did you think, oh, my God, this is so lame. I want to play some I want to play some other kind of music or like where were, where was your head at as a kid at that point? As a kid, you know, everything was relative. It's, it's, it, Hawaiian music was popular. Then that's kind of what we did. And, and uh, Western Swing was really big out there. And so we, we ended up doing some of that. I didn't I, I've had I've had the experience with. Western swing out there, but you know, I really loved the, I grew to love the really hardcore country things, yeah. you know, like Ernest Tubb and, and things like that too. Did you get a chance to start playing some of the more hardcore straight up country music that you were hearing and liked, or did that opportunity not really come up for a while? Um, I, yeah, I, I uh, was in two groups um, Hank Telford and the Trailblazers, uh, frankly, Hank, uh, Hank Telford and the Rhythm Makers. That was nice. the name of it. They had a little, you know, a little teardrop looking uh, trailer, you know, that yeah. they carried bass fiddle in and everything. Yeah. And so that was my first group. I've got some pictures of them person in my uh, my father's uh, living room. Or, not the living room yeah, you were person. young. You were just a kid. These, yeah, were, these just, were men. Yeah, these were guys. Grown people. Grown people. And uh, so I played in that for a little bit. And uh, the next one was uh, Frank Dickens and the Trailblazers. And with Frank, we ended up having a TV show of our own. I have some pictures uh, somewhere around here uh, of us playing on that that show. So do you mean that that was like his, the band leader's show, and he would come on, it would sort of be like a variety show, and there would be musical guests and stuff like that? Or like, what was the actual show? Yeah, the actual show was uh, sponsored by Pioneer Furniture Company, and they had uh, they had several little commercial spots in there. But <clears throat> otherwise, we just played uh, songs that was people knew. A Saturday morning. Saturday morning? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like a, a, yeah, Steve, I used to, I, I grew up in the same area as, as Al, and I probably saw them at one time, but I didn't know. One, I don't want um, um, it, it was like a little show, like a Saturday morning, like this Pioneer Furniture. Mostly it was like paid advertising for Pioneer Furniture, but yeah. they had this little band come in and play sets and then Pioneer Furniture kind of, you know. So it was basically a 30-minute commercial with a, with a band. Right. But, yeah. And these were adults. But he he played steel guitar better than any adult in, in that area. Right here, no, well, I, I don't know. Being, I just want to see, see a picture of him. Oh, yeah, I want to see a picture. All right, yeah. So how long did that TV show run for? Was that like a, that was a weekly thing you were doing? Yes, it was. And to me, I think it was about a year, a year and a half, something like that. It ran, ran, ran along that long, those lines. Can you see that? Oh, wait, I can see the guitar player, but I, I can't see you. You need to move it over. Yeah, now I can see you. Oh, my God, you're just yeah. you're tiny. You're like, oh, my God, that's so funny. And going to all these places and, you know, 
they played honky tonks and stuff. And, you know, here's this kid. Yeah. Crazy. Are there recordings of that band or did it all just sort of vanish into the TV ether? Uh, You know, I don't know about the video aspect of it, but I believe that um, John Landrum, who was the fellow sitting next to me, he was a tall guy, so he wanted to, didn't want to be a little giant there. His family recorded some of those things. I believe there's, I believe I have some tape of that. Yeah. Okay. So in that picture, you're playing a double, it looks probably like a Fender Stringmaster or something. Like, are you uh, at, so like, that's a professional instrument. So at some point you must have upgraded from the student model to a, to a pro model, right? Yeah. Let me think about that. Let's see. uh, The first, the first thing that, uh, that my father bought me was uh, a triple neck magnetone. And uh, I, I got away from the student thing, you know, and he bought the first one that I owned uh, was, or we owned was the triple neck magnetone. And I had, I had an E7, C6, and an F sharp seven on the back. Triple, tri- triple eights or triple sixes? Triple eights. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot of strings for a 10-year-old. Yeah, it was, and, you know. So uh, there may be some pictures of that guitar, too. I, I'm sure I have probably a picture or two of it. And um, then the next one was the, the first pedal steel from Fender, the 1000, that came into West Texas. My dad, my mom and dad, my dad was a truck driver for Phillips Petroleum. My mother didn't work at the time. Later, she worked. But... Uh, Anyway, they laid out $1,000 in 1958. Whoa, that's, a, that's expensive. That's a third of a car at that time. You know, you could buy a Chevrolet for $3,200 or whatever. Whoa. But anyway, they laid out that amount of money, and I had the first one, you know, in town. And I, and I kept hearing all these pedal steel, you know, on the radio. So what year would this have been? This is like early 50s? Uh, no, mid-50s. You know, I believe okay. that out in 58 58 is my best guess yeah okay and um i spent more time under it trying to figure out how to connect those things to make the sounds i was hearing that wasn't anybody to teach you you know so i just came up with you know what what seemed to work best and i was pretty close so (laughs) that's a that was that a double neck it was a double uh double neck eight and how many pedals were on it there was uh, eight pedals. That, there were room for 10, but there were eight, thankfully, because I had a big volume pedal that fit right in that, that little space. Yeah. You know? so, uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was really a lot of fun doing that. Was it kind of like an E9 C6 kind of thing with the eight strings, or how was it tuned? Yeah, actually, uh, with the eight string, you would go to E7. You didn't have the chromatics on the top. And right. so would be a, a E7 and then a C6, you yeah. know, G-E-C-A, And were the pedals in those days kind of doing, like, was it the G-sharp to A move and the E to F-sharp move? Like, was it doing things like that? Well, you know, the people that were doing all that and, and had a little different, I guess everybody had their little different uh, pedal configurations, you know. Yeah. And... Um, like there probably wasn't really a standard yet, or was there? No, there wasn't a standard. However, you know, some of the guys that were making the most money and and in, in Nashville and some of the better players, you know, 
we're uh, we're 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 doing uh, you know those eight string too until the tens came out. Yeah. But but yeah, I think I I ended up pretty much with uh, with the same. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name that I I found out had had first done that. Um, the two two silver talk players in Nashville. Lloyd Green and the guy that lived in Texas, uh, like Weldon Myrick, or no, um, he lived. He passed away not too long ago. Not Buddy Emmons. Buddy Emmons, Buddy. What? What? what, what John was, Hughley or something like that. No, I don't know. he had uh, thick, kind of white, uh, blonde hair at the time. Anyway, I'll think of his name. Anyway, I ended up with with that configuration you know with that, that pedal on on the right pedal and the left pedal that you use most and so that was that was how i came up with the with the uh, e7 and there was no knee levers at this point no knee levers and uh, the, the interesting thing about it is that you know with those models it's always a, a pull it's a cable the cable goes, right and it goes around the uh, turnbuckle and you can only pull it one way. <clears throat> so what I did was I, I disconnected a couple of them that weren't needed, you know, on the right end of the pedals, and number eight, number seven, as I recall. And uh, I hooked, uh, and what I did was that I got, I got a, a, a gate hinge, and I screwed it up into the bottom, and then I, I screwed a little, little paddle, a wooden paddle on the bottom side of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and with an eye bolt, I, I hooked up one of those those strings on the left. It was left knee right and yeah. right right. And that's what I used for a long, long time. Like you just came up with that or did you see somebody using knee levers? No, I knew I knew well I knew they had knee levers, but I, I knew I couldn't do do that on that guitar unless I built something, you know, because they hadn't come out with the the, the later ten string models and that yeah. had you know so, so was, uh, was your left knee right like dropping e's to e flats or was it doing something different uh left knee where's that book honey that i uh, <laughs> this is so nerdy <laughs> <laughs> that book up there that's your guitar and you got leave me uh right hold on i'll be right back okay uh, i love it steve that you know all this steel guitar stuff Oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, especially this era where it was being invented. Like, that, there, there's nothing cooler to me than, like, how it all... And everyone sort of has... It's funny, you know, like, uh, Lloyd Green has the exact same story about learning to play. Like, he was... It was door-to-door -door Hawaiian. Is that Hawaiian, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. He told me the exact same thing. Wow. And he was a little... He, he was a little whippersnapper genius, too. He was playing gigs by the time he was, like, eight as well. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Jimmy Day is the fellow I was trying to think of. Oh, oh, okay, right, of course. All right, let's see. Let me get over here into the... Uh... And his setup is all backwards. Like, I'm used to the Emmons way, but Jimmy yeah. Day, was he was reverse of that. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah that, we've got it, and so I just was going to see if there was any other info on that. 
At this point in the show, I'd like to thank our amazing sponsors for the season. We couldn't do it without their support, and this year they are Mule Resophonics. Swing wider for inspiration with Mule Resophonic guitars. These are Resophonic guitars built for acoustic guitar players. Not just blues guitars, not just slide guitars. You don't need to play them in open tunings. They're set up with normal acoustic guitar action, and they have some of the best feeling necks in the game. Trust me, they're wicked. These musical tools wake up your ear and influence your playing towards uncharted musical realms. Check out the current lineup of guitars at the Mule Store at muleresophonic.com. Thanks to Deering. Deering banjos make some of the finest instruments out there these days and caters to all levels as well. If you're just getting into the banjo, they offer their incredible Good Time series, which are high-quality instruments at lower prices. Deering banjos are all made in the USA, and their website also features some incredible info on their products and just general banjo information. And now Deering is also making pro pick finger picks and thumb picks, and that's exciting because I've been using those finger picks for years. They make these cool ones with the fingertips missing, and I love those. They're the best. You can get info on the banjos and the finger picks over at DeeringBanjos.com. Union Tube and Transistor. Union is known for guitar effects pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that sound amazing both on stage and in the studio. Their fuzz effects and compression pedals are insanely cool. I use the Sonebender Fuzz, the More Pedal, the Lab, and the Swindle Overdrive all the time in sessions and live on stage. You can find out more about them at uniontone.com. And finally, the Henhouse Hang is a three-day immersive recording experience at the Henhouse Studio in East Nashville with me, Steve Dawson. It'll be in September 2023 and then upcoming again in September of 2024. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll show you the ropes of recording roots in Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then. Let's get back to the show. Okay, here's, here's what I need to understand is how are you learning all this stuff? Like, how how was the transition going from playing Hawaiian tunes to actually getting into pedal steel? Like, did you just figure it out yourself or did you have an actual pedal instructor? No pedal instructor. I was, I was sitting there with by myself, you know, okay. and uh, I guess I was the first one in that area of West Texas, you know, to have one really later the older guys started, started buying those. But, uh, I used that, that I, I, um, uh, I sold that steel uh, to begin playing rock and roll with a rock and roll band. Yeah. Because uh, out, coming out of high school and going into college, well, I was invited to play with a group out of Midland, Texas, which was about eight, 20 miles uh, away from Odessa. And uh, the drummer was in one of my classes, and he asked me, uh, says, we're putting together a band, and he knew I played. Uh, at that particular point, I was playing rhythm in this little school thing. Yeah. And he said, uh, would you like to come over and, and, and check it out? So I did. And we had a, a group called, there's a bunch of them called Mystics, but we called them Mystics. And uh, played in that for, for a long time, uh, probably 15, 16 months, something like that. So did you start to get more interested in the guitar than you were the steel and sort of veer that way? I got away from the steel. I I, uh, I sold the steel and got a bigger amplifier and a Stratocaster guitar. 
Oh, so you, you know? didn't even you you didn't even own one anymore. Didn't even Whoa. own one for a while. Crazy. And so this went on, and and then I joined with a band that uh, called Fox F O W X out of West Texas, and we were playing in Dallas at the Rickshaw Club, and um, the uh, the band leader wanted to do some country things. He knew that I used to play steel. So they went out and bought a fire engine green 400. So 400, you know, is, 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 uh, is, is really one of the early, uh, it was before the 1000s and all that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, 400. And it was an eight string. And uh, so I just sat there. They, there wasn't room enough on the stage because the stage was in a corner, so we had, we were on a kind of a long side of a triangle, you know, facing the, the audience and uh, or dancers. So the owner came up and put a little pedestal at the same height as the stage right in front of my position. So we set the steel guitar out there and I uh, had a volume pedal running, running back. And uh, for two songs, I said, I'd go out there and play country music, you know. Okay. <laughs> so it was essentially a ro- it was essentially a rock band, like you were playing guitar yeah. for this band, and then you'd hop down to the steel. That's so yeah. cool. We played, uh, we played in uh, uh, every kind of place you can imagine in Texas, you know, but uh, uh, International Hotel, I remember we played in the, uh, across the uh, foyer from the main uh, auditorium, which Elvis was in at the time, and we were opening up for uh, uh, what's the gal's name? Uh, Tina Turner. Tina Turner. I can Tina Turner. Come on. We were opening up for them in the casino ballroom. Amazing. So uh, it's pretty cool. At least you know. But uh, it was in that band that uh, they they got me to start playing steel guitar, <clears throat> and. Uh, uh, they uh, they own the steel guitar, okay. So that will come into play here in a second. But uh, one of the uh, one of the guys from Kenny Rogers, Mickey Jones, came in there. Right, they were in town, and uh, so this was the first edition, the band, the first edition. Yeah, right? first edition. Yeah. So he came in and and uh, and saw me playing steel guitar and told Kenny about it. And here's a long-haired guitar player, uh, and what I what I didn't know at the time was Kenny was going to produce a group that ended up being Shiloh. You know, you know a little bit about that that group. Well, I know you were in that, and and Don Henley was in that band too, right? Yeah, and the Bowdens, you know, Mike and Richard Bowden. And, yeah, and had a keyboard player, but he got killed. Uh, he was killed on a motorcycle. Sky scooter, wonderful motorcycle. They had a little place out in Linden, Texas, off of the highway that they had uh, one of the highways in the country where they had their rehearsal things and they had their motorcycles and stuff. And he got killed. And Jim Ed Norman took his place. They had just talked to him. He was going to North Texas State there in Dallas. And so uh, they, uh, Kenny, or Send word to them to go and see me. So then here they come. They come come in there where we're playing, and they're standing all around this pedestal there waiting for me to play that steel guitar. So they, were, they, were they looking for a steel guitarist? Yeah, yeah. They okay. wanted something because they're going to play country rock, you know. Okay. 
So, so uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Shiloh album or not, heard it, heard it, but Kenny Rogers was responsible for that. Yes. It's a good, good one to locate if you can find them. But um, anyway, uh, they asked me to come up to the Vining Woods up there. It was, you know, kind of an hour, hour and a half drive, something like that. And uh, I borrowed the, the band's steel guitar. Yeah. And went up there and sat in with them and played. And they started playing all these things like Dillard and Clark and like uh, Sweetheart of the Rodeo and stuff like that, you know. And I said, man, this feels great because that's in my blood, you know, yeah. country music. And uh, they they told me into joining the group, and so I had to find another steel guitar. So I had to do uh, military drills. Make a, I had to make up a lot of drills out in California where I had been living for a while. And no matter where I moved to, I'd go back out there and make up drills. Uh, I had a sergeant major that would let me stay in his house. He lived real close to the airport. So I could take a taxi over there, <clears throat> stay with him, go to work with him down in, in uh, Fort, uh, what is it called? Fort MacArthur, yeah. Had you enlisted, or what, how did this Army thing come about? Yeah, when, when, the, when the war started over there in Vietnam, I had, a, I had a, some friends tell me, you better, you better get into the Guard or something, or you're going to have to go over there. So I had to go through basic training and the, all that stuff, basic training out in El Paso and advanced infantry training up in Fort Knox. And I got out of there, and I still had to make all the drills and the summer camps and all that stuff, you know. Thankfully, they didn't call us up, you know, for, for a duty. Because yeah. I had a bad MOS, which is your designation. I was trained to be a, a, a point man, you know, for reconnaissance. And like in World War II, reconnaissance was the guys out there with a, with a Jeep with a 30 caliber machine gun, three of them. And they would go out and check out and see where the other enemy was, you know. Yeah. But in Vietnam, you had no, no Jeeps. You had to be a point man, which is the first guy to hit the trap. You know, I wouldn't be here if I had to go over there. I wouldn't yeah. be here. So thankfully, God provided a way for me to stay with Sergeant Major Campbell. And he took me to work with him for a week. That made up three months of drills that I could be gone three months and go play with this new band. Wow, cool. Okay, so they sort of accommodated your weird schedule. Yeah. And <laughs> the other interesting point is that Shiloh was going to move to California. So uh, I had been out there once before with another group, and it didn't, didn't pan out. And um, so I met them. I was supposed to meet them after I did my drills in, uh, uh, what was a little town up there north of Denver? I can't remember that little town. They were playing in a little town north of Denver up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. So they were going to pick me up at Denver Airport. So I had to I had to have a steel guitar. So the fellow that builds built the amps that I still use, Bob Reese, he's passed now, but Rissed amps. I always used them. He had two amps, you know, that I still use. And um, so he knew everybody at Fender because he used to work there, you know. So he called over there and said, "Does anybody know if there's a an old one thousand or two thousand or something steel guitar that's available?" Said, you know, this they looked around and said, Yeah, there's another, there's a blonde 1000 like I had, mm -hmm. pedals, 
and that nobody ever picked up and sold. Well, how much you want for it? And they said $250. So I threw $250 down and picked it up, got on the plane, and went up there, and I had a steel guitar. Amazing. So later on, I put on the same, you know, put on those knee levers, you know, I was telling you about. With with gate hinges again? Oh, gate hinges. With gate hinges, yeah. yeah. I did. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. in fact, you know, I don't, I tell to think of it, I don't know if I did the gate hinges at all on the first one. It might have been just the second one, come to think okay. of it. But I had to have them, you know. I had so... B- before we leave this Texas thing, were you like, did you cross paths with like, you know, Doug Som and people like that that were like in that real hardcore sort of Texas rock and roll country scene in those days? Or were you just kind of on your own with the, the just, band that you were playing in? Yeah, just on our own with playing clubs. And we had a manager that uh, out of uh, Odessa, Texas, <clears throat> that that he was, he was driving a delivery truck for for some company up, out there, you know, in the oil field. And he, he wanted to get out of it. So he ended up buying a couple of honky-tonks. One of them uh, was one that uh, had country music in it. We didn't play in that one. We played in the one where it had more rock and roll in it. And uh, he became our manager. And he was the one who was finding these places for us to play in Houston and in Dallas. Okay. And that's how it got us up through, yeah. So we got out to uh, California, and uh, immediately we, uh, Kenny wanted to get us in the studio and, and record. We did one album together, and then so that Shiloh record. Can you tell me a bit about like was that your first real studio experience, and where'd you do it, and was it was it easy for you, or was it a real challenge? Now, it wasn't the first experience with this group, uh, Fox. We went, we came up to to uh, Nashville and recorded. A record of oh. actually recorded two. One was released, one wasn't. And uh, um, we ended up doing that record, and everybody started getting offers. I had an offer from uh, somebody had seen us play and told uh, the Flying Rio Brothers manager that there was a better long hair steel guitar player in town besides PDP. Yeah. So, so anyway, they, they called me and said, Would you like to come up? to the beach house uh, in Santa Monica and, and audition, you know, for this band and find readers I never heard of them. So I went out there and Bernie Ledden was still in the group, of course. And, uh, and uh, I went out there and auditioned and of course Graham had left and uh, he's, he was, I met him later. Whenever they sort of, they sort of kicked him out, right? Yeah, he was, uh, he's, I don't know what the deal was exactly, but you know, but I ended up playing them on his records a little later on with him and Emmy. Most of the recording came by way of uh, uh, the second time I was out there, you know, with uh, with with uh, Shiloh. Okay. And Kenny, Kenny would use me on some of his things, you know, and actually took me up there. They Kenny did a TV show that was based out of Canada, and. Uh, he actually took me and and uh, a keyboard player up there to do help help with the the show up there, and uh, a lot of these opportunities came through Kenny. And was he producing a bunch of other? I wasn't. I didn't realize that he was a producer. Like, was he doing that a lot at, back then? You know, uh, 
Of course, they, they, I'm not sure if they were self-produced on all of those. I got some of their records I could see. But uh, I don't know how much of it he did, but he really took uh, Shiloh under his wing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were, we were, we wouldn't, we would have probably did pretty good, you know, if we'd all stayed together, but we all had other opportunities and I kind of left and then everybody. So you're sitting in this studio and Kenny Rogers is producing you though. Is That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I guess like at the time he was sort of a rock star, right? Like yeah. see what condition my condition was in was out and you know, he was, yeah. he was a rock star. Yeah. yeah. When you joined the Burrito Brothers, so just to clarify, like Sneaky Pete had left the band, Graham had either left or been kicked out at that point, and they were sort of revamping, right? It was still kind of the the same lineup. I, I don't remember what the exact lineup was when you joined, but you were replacing Sneaky Pete. Yes, that's correct. And were you aware of him? Like, did you know his playing, and did you know kind of how far out it was and stuff? I didn't until they gave me the records to learn, and then I okay. then I so you got the gig. I got the gig, and uh, Graham was replaced by Rick Roberts. Okay, and Rick Roberts was a, a good tenor singer, great great singer. So it was kind of a revamping, you know. But it, and we did the one live record that Eddie Kramer, yeah, uh, from Electric Ladyland came out with Remote. I was so proud to meet him. I was he was one of my heroes. Oh my god, that's so cool. And so I, I got to, I got, he invited me to come up to their studio in New York and, and he had shown me all around, you know, Electric Lady. Man. Electric Lady? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I, I, I really loved that, that time. And anyway, we, we were rocking, we were rocking it out. And so that was Last of the Red Hot Burritos. That's the live record when you joined. Eddie Kramer uh, did it. Do you remember what, cl- like, was it from one gig or was it from a tour? Uh, three different. We recorded at three different uh, universities in the Northeast, uh-huh. and I think it's probably listed on the on there on the record, but I can't remember exactly which ones they were. And it was <laughs> and it was during this time that uh, we were up there, and and uh, you know Stills was out on his own, uh-huh. and so you know the birds helped them. I think uh, in some some areas uh, out in LA, but uh, uh, we wanted to go see them, and they were up in the northeast somewhere, closer to the Great Lakes. I think it was Michigan, or Cincinnati, was it Cincinnati or Cleveland? Cleveland, maybe. Cleveland. Maybe. Yeah, we went up there to see them, and we sat out there and and just weren't going to try to get backstage or anything, but. Uh, uh, our drummer, he could talk his way into uh, any any place. He said, oh, I'm going to go see Stills. You know, and so he went, out, okay, go see him. So he was up there for a long time, and then Stills came on, and he said, Stills wants to come to his, uh, his hotel afterwards, you know. So he, he had in mind that Stills was already starting uh, this Manassas record, not called Manassas, you know, then. And he wanted us to come. He wanted us not to fly back from our weekend jumps, but to come down to to Florida, and uh, and and record with him. So uh, we did. We did the first time. And had you met him before? I had not met him before. No. Okay. So so before you move on from that, like with the burritos, and uh, I would imagine it was a lot due to what you were learning from the Sneaky Pete era, like there's all kinds of crazy effects and you've got like a really fuzzed out tone on a bunch yeah. of those tunes. 
And that yeah. carries over into Manassas as well. Tell me a little yeah. bit about like the guitar you were playing and and whatever you remember about that sound because that tone to me is so unreal and that's where it really becomes your thing your thing sort of veers off from sneaky pete so i'm really interested in that sort of era in what you were playing through like instrument wise and and effects for for those kind of sounds yeah okay yeah on the uh on the album uh i had had that that steel guitar that i told you that i put the knee levers on uh, with the knee levers i had it was a double eight and uh, that's the one I used for the first recording down there, recordings down there from Manassas. And uh, I believe down there he provided the uh, the amplifiers. I can't remember what kind of amplifier I used. However, on stage, I used what they had for Sneaky, which was a showman on top and two 15s that were spread clear across either side of the stage. And their oh, own wow. Cab. Yeah. Cool. So... If I had a stereo rig, I could have, you know, really did some cool things with it. But uh, that that was basically the uh, the outfit that I had, and uh, with a, basically a Fender head. But the fuzz face was the key with the edgy sound that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so I got I gave one to uh, not Jim and Norman, but somebody else. I gave one to I gave a couple away, and I still got one. Yeah, so it was a fuzz face, like it was one of those early generation fuzz face yeah. pedals. Yeah. yeah. And did you plug it in like from the steel into the fuzz face into the volume pedal so that it was always fuzzy or did, were you working the volume into the fuzz? Yeah, I think I was working the volume into the fuzz. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. And so, man, <laughs> it's, uh, it was, I had this funky foot pedal and I finally got a, a low profile, but what I had was from years and years ago when I was learning to play, and it, it it stood up about I don't know if you can see that about that tall, you know, real high, yeah, it was a low profile at all. And of course, you know your 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 knee would be up higher. It didn't matter too much because I only had one knee lever to worry about on that, on that right. guitar. But I soon got rid of that. Got a low profile, you know, and uh, so it's. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So all that stuff with the live burritos record and the Manassas stuff is all done on the double eights with with your with your crazy self rigged knee lever and wow. The first time I went to a multiple uh, string was uh, uh, the first record that I did one of those on. I I remember uh, running into Tom Brumley because he was my hero. You know, I, I wanted uh-huh. to. 
Sam got to meet him and all, and we were we were friends at this time. And we uh, during the second recording, the second uh, Manassas recording, I, I had purchased his old. I, I given mine, sold it to a friend in Texas. The the double eight, he still has it. I think that double eight uh, Fender. Yeah. And I got, uh, I like uh, Tom's guitar because it had a low E. It had 11 strings on the E9. And I couldn't do without that low E with a lot of stuff that I do. And so uh, we talked a little bit and uh, ended up buying that. And I'd had it for two weeks. And I, I had a little apartment up in North Hollywood there. And I was learning, you know, how to touch and feel and, you know, work that, and the strings were higher and, and closer together. So yeah. I was really, really struggling to get used to it. In comes a call for me to come down to the studio, and uh, it was the Rolling Stones gig that I did there, and I'm toy and frayed. And so that was an that was an overdub call. Yes, that was an overdub call. They had been oh. recording for, uh, France. In France, you know? yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this is a funny story. So I got got in the car and went down there. It was evening time, and so I came through the the, the studio door. Actually, you could go after you came in the back of the studio. There, you could either go to the right to the control room or the left into the regular uh, you know room. And uh, I noticed that they had mics up in the room. I knew they had been recording, but there was a vocal mic up. And they said, come on in, you know, come on in. And uh, if you'd like to, to go direct, you know, come on in. We'll set you up at the end, other end of the console. Did you know who the session was for or had they told you? Yeah, I, yeah, I knew it was. Okay. So uh, I set up at the end of the console, facing the console at the opposite end of where I came in. And it was in levels, you know, you came in, there were some seats in front of the control room window, a big window, and there's seats in front of it, and then a layer where the console was, and then there was a balcony kind of a thing, you know. And maybe not a balcony thing, but it was it was all on that same level. And so I sat there facing the guys, you know. So uh, it seemed like menagerie almost. It was a, <laughs> it's like a, Keith was dressed in a swashbuckler outfit, literally. It looked, it looked like they'd come from a costume party. <laughs> He looked like, you know, he reminds you of a, of a pirate anyway, you know. Yeah. And his wife was about eight months pregnant, and she had this tight exercise bumblebee striped suit on, which accentuated the fact that she was expecting. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm trying to make some sense out of a guitar that I've had for two weeks. And oh, my God. And this was going on. Not only that. They said, uh, Nick is going to sing the vocals. And uh, I'll say, I said, you know, I got plenty of time. I saw the bike out there with a with a stand for music stand. And I said, well, I can wait. And that wasn't the idea. The idea was he wanted me to feel like it was a live experience. So oh. he had a hand mic. And yeah. he did a stage routine on this creaky end of this wooden stage. And my... And my steel's moving around, and he's he's just he's singing it, and I and all around me just so that I got a 
feel for a live performance. They wanted a live performance. <laughs> that is crazy and awesome. Crazy. And uh, so I played it down one time, and I missed a couple of spots. Played it down the second time. I did pretty good. Third time, that's that's the take I think they took. And uh, each time, he, he sang and running around with that microphone. <laughs> oh, my God. So was Jimmy Miller there? Like, who was involved in that session? Jimmy Miller that's, was the producer, I guess, and Glenn Johns was the engineer. Was Were all those guys there? Yeah, those were the suit guys. You know, they go into studios with suits on. So we had, right. like, we had, like, two or three guys in suits, you know, those guys and whoever was with them. You know, I didn't really get to talk with them much, you know. But, but my... <laughs> That was pretty wild. That is so crazy. Um, what can you tell me about the Manassas session? Like that first record is so organic. Like it must have been done pretty much live, I'm guessing, um, rather than like overdubbed in bits. But can you just tell me a bit about it's a big band. And, and can you tell me about how the whole thing went down and was Stills like, did he have a pretty specific vision of how everyone would fit together? Or was it just kind of like a jam that evolved that turned into that record? He had all this idea in his mind, you know, there are four different sides with four different styles of music. And the countryside was what he wanted us down there for initially. <clears throat> so we we came down there for that. And everything, you're right, it was uh, back then that was, that studio was the MCI testing grounds. So they had an MCI console and the new MCI 16 track the machine. Yeah. yeah. So that was your testing grounds down there. And um, uh, Howie and Ron were our engineers during that time. But I mean, Stephen would go, he'd start in the early evening and go all night. He didn't, he'd sleep during the day. And that was kind of different for especially me and Chris. You know? <laughs> and, uh, so uh, but we, we, we kind of gravitated into it, I guess. And uh, so we would do, uh, we wouldn't do any more than four takes, I would say, on average, three mm -hmm. to four takes, maybe five sometimes. And uh, that'd be it, you know. And you, you don't, there's no really overdubbing. He would, what he had in mind, he was going to piece together parts that he needed if he couldn't get a whole uh, yeah. single, single run. So they, they would spend, we were in there recording, you know, up, up into the wee hours, but then he'd spend up till daybreak with uh, one or probably one at that time. They'd probably one of them go sleep and he, the other engineer would stay with him or rotate. But anyway, he'd piece together those things and, and put together the things that needed, you know, the way he liked it. And was he doing all his vocals live and stuff too? Like, was that sort of set up like a gig essentially, or was it all through yeah. know, isolation and headphones and whatnot? There's a later version of the CD that came out. I'll see if I can get her to find out. I'll show it to you. It's a picture of our setup from from up in the rafters. And oh, that's from the that's from the original session. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. For the original sessions, but it came out on a on an after the aftermarket thing, you know. And I, I think we can find that for you. But um, yeah, we just. Chris, he really didn't like those hours of working, you know. He always kind of, I don't know, sorry, Dal. Sorry to get you into this, you know. So, but no, it's fine, you know. I was, I was enjoying it, you know. 
So you rolled with it. You you would sleep during the day too and get up in the evening and go into the studio all night. And that's just how you rolled for a while. Yeah, I think probably we just kind of tried to change our, change our settings, you know? Yeah. But like, it's interesting because the, the burritos as great and kind of like legendary as they are, when you think back on them, they didn't really have like the commercial success anywhere close to what stills had had at that point. So it must, was it kind of, intimidating in a way playing with a guy like that that had had achieved like kind of superstardom at that point in his career and he was sort of looking for a new direction yeah you know um i really didn't follow that music as much you know as i probably could have but i was aware i was i was aware of the success of quality skills and nash and and all of those uh things that they were involved in and they were sort of taking a break as i understand it from each other doing their own yeah you know and um, so it was just just a, a special special time, I guess you know. And then well, it's a special record. It sounds amazing, and your playing is so killer on it. Oh, thanks. It's just thank the Lord because sometimes sometimes it'd be the first time you heard this song. <laughs> yeah, You're trying to find your way around, but hallelujah, you know. <laughs> they don't make records like that anymore with with bands that yeah. that big making that much of a racket that sounds so great. Yeah. You know? You know, you got a hundred tracks you can fill up, and then then you have to spend yeah. all that time going through them. It's better not to have that many tracks and just know what what you're going to do. You know, as much as yeah. With Manassas, it always feels to me like I mean, I wasn't there, and I wasn't even born really at this time. But uh, it seems to me like Stills always had one foot out the door because he was always. He, he was sort of on the verge of going back to CSNY at that point, or CSN or whatever it was at that point. Uh, did you guys tour? And like, was there, were you yeah. committed in some way to that band? Okay, so what? how long did that go on for? Well, the first tour we did was, of course, I'll uh, back up just a little bit. Uh, Stephen had, had uh, he knew he had to have a surgery on a, on a foot. I believe it was a foot. Uh, and he was going to do that in December, uh, late November, December and then recuperate in Elstead in, in south of England, where he had uh, had that big house, you know, uh, Peter Sellers' old house. And I think- Really? Uh, yeah, I think uh, one of the Beatles uh, had it for a while too. But anyway, it was a wonderful place. And he had a, had a had billiards room out by a pond, just in a little river coming by. So he converted that uh, billiards room into a rehearsal room. We got there's pictures of that too, and uh, the uh, the place where uh, they they had built all this was there whenever he he got it. Uh, the, the, the house itself was really old, but there was new. Peter Sellers put in a, like a five car garage with oh, yeah. with a cinema over the top. You know, awesome. <laughs> So what happened was the road crew converted the cinema up there. It had restrooms, showers, and all that stuff. They had, like, military bunks, you know, and they stayed up in that place. And oh. we put all of our gear underneath what wasn't being used, you know, in a five-car garage. We put cases, and then we set up and further closer down to the creek in that billiards room. And... Um, we just left it set up and go down there and play till our heart's desire and, and come back. And he had people to take care of the fire and, you know, the fireplaces and 
able to cook. And so it was it was comfortable. It was very comfortable. Yes. And and what was what was Stills like to work for at that point? Was was he a creative, you know, interesting dude like that that he seems to be? <laughs> yeah. You know, there was a separation of sorts uh-huh. um, at that point because I've never done the drugs, you know, and they would all you know, sort and whatever, you know, was around, they were, they were into Yeah. But, um, I just didn't, I just never got into that. So I missed a lot of the quote social time, you know, there, but there was plenty of Paul Harris and I, we, we would, you know, go down to the village or we'd do stuff together too. And, and, uh, so it, it was, uh, we all had our own little places in that, in that nice, uh, home. And um, someone that uh, Johnny's Garden, that song Johnny's Garden, there was a real Johnny yep. that maintained that, that the grounds. And he had a place out near the carriage house where he lived. And um, uh, so it was just just amazing time, really. And yeah. we went out and did a couple of things in London, uh, just kind of sneak in to sneak out, you know, just and. Um, and I think we went over to Amsterdam and did did one show over at the Concertgebouw. That's their big big hall. And yep. uh, before we toured, and when we toured, we left uh, England, flew to Tel Aviv, and to Bangkok. Wow! And to uh, did we stop in China or someplace? We made one more stop before we flew to Perth which is the northern part of Australia. We came from wintertime into summertime. And we got out, I'll say. We got out of that plane in the middle of the night for uh, you know, customs. And here's these brown guys, you know, those police guys with shorts on, you know, the Australian hats, you know, turned up. On yeah, yeah. And here we are in coats and stuff, <laughs> getting over there and going through customs and, uh, Finally, we were making our way down to uh, uh, the south of uh, Australia to uh, drive in all the way out to a place called Moala, which they had the Moala Rock Festival, and that's the first big gig that we played. Oh, okay. And uh, and when we left there, we played at the uh, I think it's called the HIU. It's a, in Honolulu. It's a big big uh, indoor venue and so we played there and then we started our tour in, in america and uh, and i mean stills was like as big as you can get as far as like rock stars go at that time that was like 73 74 probably like were those crowds coming out from manassas I, i'm guessing they probably were right yeah mainly on his on his record you know <laughs> yeah and, uh, just uh, people knowing crosby stills of nash and and just knowing all about his music, you know. How did that lead to working with Graham? Like at some point, it seems like your career like heavily veered into the studio, and yeah. and that sort of seems like maybe that was kind of one of those first early yeah. things where you were like a session guy all of a sudden. Yeah. Is that was that a conscious decision for you? Not really. Uh, just they just calls just came in, you know, and 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 I guess uh, uh, if if you do good, if you do well on one. Thing, was playing, I was able to play on some Kenny Rogers things, and when Graham came and brought Emmy Lou over, um, uh, those things it took a while for those to take off. But at Graham's death, that 
turned a lot of attention on that, on his music and that style too. So that first record, the the GP one that you did with him, mm-hmm. like he was probably pretty messed up at that time, I'm guessing. And and interestingly to me, also Rick Gretsch or Grek, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but the, he was the bass player from Blind Faith, produced that record, which is cool. Uh, Emmy Lou's there. James Burton was there. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Emmons is on that record too. Yeah. Tell me a bit about that session. Like, were you overdubbing, or were you involved in the in the live tracks, or how did that all go down? We well, yeah, we did it on the first album. That's when uh, Buddy played on uh, two or three songs, and then I played on two or three songs, I think. Um, and uh, were you there at the same time as him? No, it would have been different sessions. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Glenn D. Harden did all the, t- the charts. <clears throat> I've still got one in my my suitcase. Really? Yeah. He, oh, man. He I, just, that's so cool. He did meticulous, beautiful charts. And uh, so he was the session leader, you know. On those. Yeah. And so uh, we, uh, I remember, funny thing about that now, uh, I had my, my steel guitar in the room with, with everybody else. And um, I was running direct back then because back then you could run direct into anybody's board virtually mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. They all had tube limiters, which okay. the warmness of the tube, whether it goes through an amplifier or whatever. And so uh, I brought my little pig nose amplifier and set it on a stool I put this little pig nose. Uh, it looked just like this. I love those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they haven't changed much since the 70s, have they? Anyway, I had, that might have been that one. I had it on there just so I could turn it up and hear myself playing. I've never put a steel through a pig nose, but it must be pretty raunchy. Well, somebody, and I can't prove this, but somebody put a microphone in front of that thing, but when I was paying no attention, and I Surely they didn't use it. It doesn't sound like they used it, but I was freaked out whenever I thought, oh, no. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> but anyway, that was a funny thing. But uh, the charts were meticulous. I mean, they were just uh, just great. And uh, had slightly different uh, players on the second second album. You know, was Graham around for those sessions or was he sort of in and out? Or Oh, no. Like, I know he was not in great shape, right? No, he he's seen. I didn't know that he was doing any drugs. I mean, I wasn't. I, I wasn't a drug. Okay. No, but he was lucid and just right on the money and just playing. He play every song with us. And I'm sure they overdubbed their vocals, but Emmy Lou was there, so they were singing with us to give us the feel of the song. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, he he did real well on on both both wow. albums. And and, and Emmy Lou was there from the beginning too yeah. of, of those records that must have kind of blown your mind like she's pretty phenomenal yeah yeah she uh chris met her when we were playing uh in uh oh what is the name of that little club down in uh washington outside of washington dc it's in georgetown georgetown I don't know yeah i can't remember it was a popular place but anyway uh one of the a band when we were playing with the flying Rio brothers and playing at this club uh-huh. Uh, heard Amy Lou down in another club and told Chris. Chris went down there and just fell in love with her voice. And yeah. and, 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 and he kind of had in mind, he wanted to do kind of what was 
ended up, you know, with Graham. But he told Graham about about her, and and uh, that's how that how that uh, she met Graham. And uh, cool. Yeah, they had her out there in L.A. Did working on records like that, like I know those records also are way bigger in hindsight than they were at the time. Like they weren't huge records. Now they're revered as like some of the greatest country rock records ever made. But at the time they kind of essentially flopped. Did they help you as far as your session career kind of launch? I, hmm, they must have. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I think the, when you mention that, the Rolling Stones session probably most likely and I'm pretty sure came from the fact that Graham was hanging out with them over in France. Yep. Right. I think that's what, what, what put that together. Yeah. Cause that led to like, you worked with like, I mean, your, your credit list from that point seems to just like skyrocket. So were you basically in LA that whole time? And were you, how busy were you as a session guy? during those like mid seventies through eighties years. Yeah. It, it seemed really, uh, really, really uh, good, you know, for, especially during the seventies and eighties uh-huh. changed a little bit. Um, but, um, of course music was changing probably in the eighties. That's, you know, punk and everything. Yeah. They're tearing everything apart, you know, but, uh, yeah, I think the seventies would have been the, the, the key, the key for all of all the other things. Like, um, were you were you in, involved in sessions like uh, multiple times every every week, all all year long, kind of thing? Or for the most part, during that heavy time, yeah, that was that was uh, that was really a rich rich time for doing sessions, you know. And uh, yeah, it did slack up, begin to slack up in the eighties, uh, you know, a little bit just because of the music changing, you know. Yeah, got up here. And uh, immediately, Emmy wanted to start the uh, Nash Ramblers, you know, so we... Uh, so had you kept in touch with her? Like, had you played with her over the years? I guess you'd done a few records with her through the 80s and stuff, right? No, uh, I never did really, you know, I know she... Oh, okay. She, uh, she called for me to play once or twice during that time, and I couldn't do it. And okay. So I, I forgot who all had played Steel in, in, in that in those years, but yeah, a couple of three other guys. And then, uh, I don't remember how, how we connected to at a Christmas party, Christmas party. That's right. Oh, yeah. And the Christmas party. And, um, so she was thinking about putting together this idea, you know, in her head and, uh, became the uh, Nash Rambers. And what a band. So that was you and the, the Roy Husky Jr. Who's like just one of the most legendary <laughs> bass players ever. Sam Bush, right? Right. And who who's who was playing guitar in that band? It's just John Randall. John Randall. Yeah. Oh, okay, right. And so that record that you guys did that live record, the live at the Ryman thing, which sort of gets credit for bringing the Ryman back to life. Yeah. Uh, was that like a was that like a concept from the beginning? Was like, hey, let's put this band together and do this crazy concert at the Ryman and or was it just like a weird fluke, or how did that all come together? I believe it came from the fact that Emmy is so conscious of the, the meaning of that building, you know, and the history of that, be- that building, that she just couldn't see it torn down or disrupted, you know. And uh, I think it was her, just uh, her love for that music and love for what it stood for and how many artists have been there. So I think without, without that, I don't know if it'd still be there. 
you know. Was it in pretty rough shape in those days? Apparently so, yeah. They had to do some some work on it, you know. But uh, yeah. But anyway, I I was glad to to be a part of that. That uh, being on that stage was really special. So that live record was that just one concert? That was one night, one concert. Let's see. Uh, I think that we did uh, two two nights there. It seems to me like okay. And uh, can't be sure if we did a third one or not. We came back and played there again later on. You know, yeah. but but in the beginning on that album, you're I think you play a little bit of banjo and maybe a little guitar, but basically you're the dobro player. Yeah. Was dobro something you'd always play? Like, had you always done that? Or was were, was that something you picked up more along the way in later years? Or how, like, what was your relationship with the dobro? You know, it went all the way back to us traveling with uh, Stephen Stills. We played in a at the University of Tennessee over there in Knoxville. And um, we always did like an acoustic set in the middle of the set, you know, the main the main show for Manassas. And oh, cool. uh, Chris, Chris and I, of course, Stephen would come out and he'd play either guitar or banjo or piano, but he wanted us to go out there and, and play a little something too. So Chris and I'd go out there and play. And at first, you know what? I just played guitar with him, I guess, or banjo. I had a little banjo, I think, at that time. And uh, But um, we got to thinking about the dobro, and we were playing at the University of Tennessee, and the, a lot of the university kids were helping us set up the stage and all. And I put out the word, said, you don't know this is the right part of the country for it, but you don't know if anybody has a dobro for sale. And uh, lo and behold, they asked a couple of people and said, you know, we, we think we know where one is. And he came wagging, one, they came wagging this thing back and had been up in a hayloft or something for, for a long time, picking out little pieces of hay. And it was just a funky little, little cheap thing, but we played that thing for um, on, on our set. You know, we played it uh, on Manassas and then later on, when Chris uh, was uh, was going out on his own in the eighties, you know stuff. Well, I would I would wag that thing around too. And when he did the Sugar Hill, when he did the Sugar Hill records, I think that's I think he did two of those. I think the Dobro was that funky little Dobro. I remember, oh, cool. Remember when we were out? He and I playing some of these folk things, some folk and bluegrass things back east, and uh, and I. We we saw Jerry Douglas and I said he, he wanted to see this Dobro and I <laughs> I showed him this Dobro of course it, it was way miles worse than what he he had you know so after yeah. I, I ended up getting one like him you know and uh, I had a nice relationship with uh, Gibson since uh, one of Dolly's uh, uh, cousins started working there you know started working for. Uh, for um, I guess it started out in California where they were first making the dobros, you know, and then they yeah. they they sold out or whatever, and and then uh, Richie and another friend of his took it to Gibson, and then they made a and, uh, and they did a there's like an Al Perkins model do, yeah. dobro at that time, right? Yeah, there's a oh. thing here is a is a picture. Oh, yeah, can you see it? Probably. I can. Yeah. Do you have a few of those kicking around? Of the dobros? Yeah. I think we've got uh, we got one of the originals. And, uh, yeah. 
The son has one and you have one. And I gave one to one of my sons and then, then I kept I kept the, the main one. They don't make that or I guess they don't make Dobros at all anymore, right? I think they're probably out of the out of the Dobro business by now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, yeah, I think. They sure gave me a lot of uh, promotion, you know, for you know. Yeah, that's great. In return. After all this amazing session work that you did in the 80s and 90s, I mean, I could ask you a million questions, but I I know you have to go soon, but I'm just curious about things for you recently. Like, where are you at? Are you trying to not work as much now? Are you staying off the road? Are you, I noticed that you, you know, you're playing on records, like you played on a, on a big Miranda Lambert record last year. Uh, Are you actively looking to do sessions and playing or where, where are you at right now? You know, uh, I, I, uh, I'm just kind of happy taking care of the yard out here, you know. <laughs> we, got, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we got a lot of it to, to take care of. It. But uh, anyway, I, I enjoy doing the sessions. I, I think my touring days are over, but I think that uh, the, uh, the, the the sessions, are, I always enjoy them, you know. They, they're not as plenteous as it used to be, but I understandably the, the music has changed, the artists have changed. But, and that's going to happen. But, yeah, I mean, I get to play a couple of times here and there. and, and that, that. Are you selective about sessions? Like if somebody calls you and they're like, hey, I got a session for some guy and you don't know who it is, will you do it? Or are you kind of like, eh? You know, uh, the only thing that I, that I have really been uh, a sticker for is just crude lyrics and stuff. You know, I don't want to be a part of that. But other, other yeah. than that, you know, if they're not slandering the Lord or or doing something else that's weird, too weird, <laughs> then I usually... You're good to go. Yeah. And do you keep up with the steel playing stuff, or do you just play it when you're doing a session, or, like, how how fit are you on the steel? Uh, yeah, I've got one sitting up here behind me that I sit down yeah. every once in a while just to keep limbered up, you know. And uh, uh-huh. I get probably, uh, I guess, in the sessions I'm doing now, you know, probably a good... Uh, 50 to 60% or pedal steel. Okay. And the rest would be dobro, banjo, guitar, whatever else? Yeah, just odd, odd yeah. things or lap steel. I, I enjoy playing the lap steel too. And mm-hmm. a lot of people want a little rock edge or something, you know, we'll do that. What's your current steel that you play in these days? It's uh, made in uh, Australia. Oh. A guy who's an absolute genius. Um, it's called the Anapeg. Uh, steel guitar is name oh never heard of that it's a it's a keyless it yep. it just plays like like glass I mean it's just so smooth you know and it's mm-hmm. pickups or he's worked on the pickups since I first met him back in the, when we were down there with Dolly 87 88 time time frame that's when I met him he came to see me to show me his guitar. And uh, I thought, well, this is really, it's a real short thing because it doesn't have the keys, you know. Yep. It must be lighter too, though, right? It's not necessarily lighter because the wood is very dense. It's very, and okay. whole tuning well, you know, and playing changes in climate. And man, it just, uh, I played the thing and I, uh, I've got, I've got, he's made me three through the course of, uh, how many years would that be? 91, two, or something like that. Was it 91 or two? I think I got the first one. So it's been a while, but I've, I've got three of them. Wow, cool. Well, I don't, I've never heard of that brand. That's so cool. So it's Australian. 
Australian made, yeah. He's uh, a yeah. He's about to retire. It's, uh, it, was, he, it was never, it was always more like a boutique special order sort of steel guitar. He never was right. like in stores. He wasn't mass manufacturing them. Right, right. right. He, he went out, he'd go out to the outback, mind you, and get these stand of trees, which is probably against the law to, to get them, you know. But he would have to, yeah. they have to carry guns to fight off the animals, you know, the, that are vicious out there. And then they'd cut those things, and and they'd, they'd probably be, out, be about 100 miles out, 70, 80, 100 miles out. They would cut all the wood, cover it up with chips to, so, so it wouldn't dry out prematurely, and cover, oh, that, yeah. cover that up, carry it back. And then he had a kiln, and he would he would age this wood for a year or so before, wow. before he'd even start working. It's amazing uh, dedication. Wow. You know? Yeah. So, Al, do you, are you going to be playing anywhere around Nashville at all in the next while? Like, do you do, you do gigs around anymore? You know, um, I don't know of any right now. They, they seem to pop up, you know, just, hey, come and play. Yeah. You know, but uh, we'll try to give you a, a holler if we do. Well, listen, thanks so much. I really appreciate the, the time and, and the hassle of getting this together. It's, uh, it's great to talk to you. And Sorry it took so many turns there to get it going. So worth it. Uh, well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay. And thanks to Pamela for helping out, too, for the tech support. Oh, well, tech support. Yeah, tech support's in the house. Tech support's in the house. <laughs> thank you, Steve, for, thank you so much. for bearing with us old folks. And thanks <laughs> Not a problem at all. For, thanks for promoting the music and steel guitar players. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love it. Appreciate you. You have, you have a good I appreciate you guys, too. All right. Have a great day. Uh, now I have to figure out how to turn this thing off. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in and listening, everybody. Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast is produced at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville, Tennessee. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist for Spotify and Apple Music at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thank you again to our sponsors this season, Union Tube and Transistor, Spectra 1964, The Deering Banjo Company, Mule Resonator Guitars, and The Hen House Hang. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Over and out. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.